So I was, um, it was the summer between ninth and 10th grade, and I went on a trip to Tizay, France, with the annual conference here in North Texas. It was a bunch of youth, and it was an amazing trip. There were a lot of highlights, especially I enjoyed getting to know a lot of the other young people from Sweden. They were my favorite. And um, one night, we, uh, we snuck out, of, well, it's not sneaking out, we let our chaperones know we were going to go down to the community, the little village that's right next to Tizay, and there's this very small chapel there, and it was open, and it's made of stone, probably made in, you know, like the 1500s or something, and um, we sat there in a, in a group, about eight of us, and we sang that song, and uh, every time I sing it now, I get goosebumps, and I don't know if it's because the windows are open or not, but I was like... I was feeling a little uh, chilly, a little empowered, and, and it gets back to something I want to say in my sermon, that our memory serves a really important purpose in our faith development. Our memory, how we recall how God has shown up in our past affects not only our present, but also our future. Last week, we talked about um, God as being one who is in a deep desire, has a deep desire to be in relationship with us, with you, specifically you, right? And all of creation. Two weeks ago, we said we couldn't say a whole lot about God. We had to approach God with humility and an awareness that God is so expansive and uh, so uh, completely other that it is difficult for us to speak with certainty on the attributes of God. But one thing I think we can claim is that God desires a deep relationship with creation. It's something we see in scripture over and over and over again, whether that's the covenant that God has with Abraham or in the relationship God forges with Moses, how God calls and redeems David to do incredible things on God's behalf or even in the story of Ruth, right? We see God desperately wanting to be in relationship with creation. It's what we read about in the prophets. It's how we come to understand the uniqueness and the particularity of Jesus. And it's how we make sense of the work of the disciples in the church. So scripture reveals over and over a God who seeks us out and really goes to the ends of the earth and refuses to give up on creation. Last week was what is God's primary objective, task, and desire? It's the like what about what is God doing in the world? What is God doing? God is seeking to be in relationship with us. So if last week was the what, today we focus on the how. How does God enter into relationship with us? How does God accomplish this task of being intimately known and intertwined in our lives? What mechanisms does God employ? What is the divine function? Now for us as Christians, 
I don't think it, it bears repeating, but I think we all know. For us as Christians, Christ is the one who redeems us through his birth, his ministry, his life, his death, and then his resurrection. It is the most significant, accessible, all-encompassing way we, as a body of believers, come to know God's desire to be in relationship with us. It's what makes us unique as Christians. It's what we hold as central to our faith. And hear me say this, there is no substitute for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Right? If that isn't something we believe, we would have a different faith. But we are gathered together as a body of believers because Jesus is at the center of our relationship with God. But not every answer can be just simply Jesus, right? To all the questions that exist when we pick up scripture, all the ways we think about how God works in the world, Jesus just can't be the standard answer we give. Like tonight, I start uh, interviewing candidates for ordination. Somehow, some way, I was chosen to be on the board of ordained ministry. I don't know why, but it happened. And I said yes, and then I realized it was a 12-year commitment. So tonight, we... <laughs> be like 49 when I'm done. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be interviewing candidates for ordination. They're already uh, faithful in their witness and in their ministry. They're already appointed serving in churches. We're essentially giving them uh, the approval of the board so that they will become elders in full connection. So we're going to start that process tonight, right? And so I ask you to be in prayer for the work of the board and for the candidates coming forward. It is a grueling process. Uh, the interview is intense and the paperwork is plentiful. But I always get a little... Squimish? What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, that one. Um, I always get a little uncomfortable when, when candidates uh, try to get back to Jesus just being the answer for everything, right? Because Jesus actually arises out of a very specific context. It is not like Jesus is born and that is the beginning of God's desire to be in relationship with creation. No, throughout scripture we see God deeply desiring to be known, to be worshiped, to be understood, and to kind of bind the community together. The incarnation takes place in a very specific context after God has been in a struggle with God's people for centuries. And so we want a full picture of God's work in the world, a full understanding of how scripture reveals this God's work in the world. So how does God relate and stay connected? There may not be a better response for us actually than Psalm 103. It is a beautiful response to the question. And this is indeed a psalmist love song to God and to the community. And so we look at Psalm 103. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless 
God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your inequity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our inequities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we are made. He remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its places knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. So Psalm 103, this portion, is a lovingly crafted work of art. This is how we should approach many of the Psalms, Poetry, hymns, they are indeed often love songs written describing the love between creator and created, between humans and the divine. And while the psalmist is speaking towards God, I think we can derive some conclusions about who God is from her testimony. And it all hinges, really, swings on the psalmist's notion that God is a forgiving God. So if God last week wants to be in relationship, remember I said I was gonna give you three attributes of God over the next three weeks, right? If God wants to be in relationship with you, right? That was last week's theme. Today we focus on God being a forgiving God, one who shows an abundant amount of mercy, right? God is so willing to forgive that divine judgment, which is also a quality of God that cultivates true awe and fear in scripture, is only overcome or pacified by God's extravagant mercy displayed throughout the scripture. And I think we can trust the psalmist's uh, words here because she begins by centering and elevating the Shema and Deuteronomy 6, right? She understands that for her to have some credibility with the community, she must let everyone know that she has loved God with her whole self. The self-exhortation and 
pours her own kind of soul self to bless God. She comes before God in prayer, prepares to lead the community in praise, to love God with their whole selves, heart, soul, and mind, all fixated on God. The psalmist is concerned that the community will forget all of God's benefits. That's what we read in verse two and three. There is a concern that the community is beginning to forget all that God has done on their behalf. So she lists them in kind of a six-fold list starting in verse three. And she uses the second person plural that elevates the specificity of God's redeeming work. You are forgiven, is what she says. You are forgiven. You are healed. You are healed. You are saved from the pit. You, specifically you. It's at this point when we recognize what the psalmist is doing, right? That we understand her words are both communal in nature, but speak to us in very personal and intentional ways. She intends for her audience to see God as specifically acting in the lives of individuals. And I think we can get so overwhelmed by the expansive nature of who God is As Phil kind of talked about in children's time, we can get so overwhelmed by how unknowable God is and how all-powerful God is that we can kind of get lost and begin to feel a bit unseen and unheard and forgotten. But as we begin this journey of unfolding God's story throughout this year and allowing God's story to become our story, I think you need to know this right out of the gate, right? that you are forgiven. You're forgiven. All of it. All means all. You are completely loved, just as you are. God's forgiveness and mercy are yours, and specifically yours. This is paramount for us who seek God's story becoming our own. And so if we take nothing else away from today, if you leave here and you kind of ponder what was Mitchell even talking about, I want to make it very clear. This is the most important thing. You are forgiven. God's forgiveness is from a place of such abundance that you are forgiven, that God's mercy is active in your life right here and right now. That is the good news that the psalmist proclaims to us in 103 and that all of our shortcomings, all of our sin, all of it is forgiven by God because that is part of God's plan for relationship with us, right? To overwhelm us with God's extravagant mercy. Everything flows out of this. What we are left to do is then trust that this is the case when we can't feel it, experience it, or even begin to believe it for ourselves. I am an emotional person. I lead with my emotions. I organize the world with my emotions. It's one of my greatest flaws and one of my greatest gifts, right? But I've learned pretty quickly to not trust all of my emotions. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> they are not all valid or worthy of equal consideration, right? But it becomes so difficult for us when we begin to have an emotional response to our circumstance where we think God is indeed absent from our life. It stunts our faith development, obviously, but more than that, it begins to affect how we make sense of our own relationship with God. And the claims of the psalmist are indeed kind of unwavering and uncompromising in her boldness and unwavering witness. We're invited into a relationship with God that transforms, heals, repairs, and redeems all of it. And yet, even in the confidence that is displayed in Psalm 103, feels like we're living in a really different world than that. Right? So we may actually balk at what the psalmist is saying. We, we may actually not believe it. And indeed, we, we should really question it. What is complete and unmerited healing look like? What does it look like as our spouse dies of cancer? What does it look like to have God rescue us from the pit when depression has gotten a hold of our lives in such a way that we don't feel anything at all? How do we make sense of the reality in which the psalmist is describing when the reality does not match our lived experience day in and day out? What does it mean for us to be forgiven when sin is still so present and active in our lives that we are uh, destroying our own lives and the lives of others? In some ways, proclaiming God's mercy in such a dramatic fashion as the psalmist does can feel like whitewashing our own experiences, our very own lived reality. This leaves us vulnerable to believing that God's overwhelming forgiveness, mercy, steadfast love, the Hebrew word here is hesed, is conditional or limited or worse, not the truth and not a truth that we can proclaim to others. But we must remember as a people because before the psalmist was rescued, she was teetering on the edge. The chill of the pit was on her heels. Before she was healed, the psalmist's body intimately knew the frailty that accompanies disease. And so while this divine mercy that is expressed in 103 is intimately experienced, it is also a proclamation and a promise that must be boldly proclaimed by the community. For we may not feel God's hand pulling us away from the grips of death in the moment, but as a community, we can remember that our grandfather Jacob felt it. As a community, we can remember that our grandmother Hagar saw it. Our mother Hannah experienced it. Our brother Paul was overcome by it. We are a people of story, 
And so we tell the story to point people to God being at work in the lives of the saints, in the lives of our siblings, and God's mercy and forgiveness is made tangible and real when we point one another to that reality. The inbreaking of God's Hesed, love, forgiveness, mercy is best discovered in the collective memory of what God has done. The present is too disorienting. And the future is too unknown. But it is in the past. The past is the best source for our assurance and the cultivating of our trust. And then this becomes the work of our community. We speak of God's collective benefits, like the psalmist says, as a way to bind God to our work. The memory of what God has done, of God's unrelenting forgiveness and mercy, binds us to God and God to us and us to one another. And that's why this year-long exploration of God's story is equal parts, individually yours, specifically yours to do, and ours to do as a community. Because as we dig in together into scripture and to wrestling with what it means to believe in God, to come to understand ourselves, to find God's grace in our life, right? As we do this throughout the entire year, as individuals, we also as a community are doing the work. So when we forget that God is abundant in how God gives or distributes forgiveness and mercy in the world, when we forget, when our toes are hanging over the edge of the pit, the community can say, no, wait, (laughs) here it is. You can't see it, but believe me, it is real. It's why we have to both simultaneously commit to the hard work as individuals so we can show up for the community. And it's why we rely on each other to do the good work of allowing God's story to become our own story. And the best way, the absolute best way to tell of God's forgiveness and mercy is to remember where you last experienced it. That is the best way. So, take a moment. Settle in. Think about where God's faithfulness has shown up in your life. When was the last time you experienced it? This week I want you to spend five or 10 minutes, not a lot of time, Five or 10 minutes just writing about that experience in your journal. Documenting it, or writing about how it made you feel, or writing about what the result of that (laughs) inbreaking of God's hesed was in your life. But recall the last time you experienced and spent five or 10 minutes writing about it in your journal this week. Because the best way, 
The best way for God's story to become our story is recognizing that the process is already underway. Will you pray with me? God, there are times in our lives where we desperately need you to show up and in some way, somehow you do. And there are other times in our lives where we desperately need you to show up and it feels like you couldn't be farther away. May we as a community commit to recognizing your constant and ever-present faithfulness in our midst so that we can point one another to the forgiveness and mercy that is ours because you are a God that wants to be in relationship with us and you go out of your way to make that a reality. Help us to respond well today and in the days to come. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.